Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a book entitled The Private Key to Heaven. It's written by Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks was the English nonconformist preacher and writer who died in 1680. He's giving us uh, some answers to objections that people have for not praying in private. This is objection number two. We are servants. Others may object and say, Sir, we, we grant that private prayer is an indispensable duty that lies upon the people of God, but we are servants, and we have no time that we can call our own. And our master's business is such as will not allow us any time for private prayer, and therefore we hope we may be excused. Well, first, uh, the text is indefinite and not limited to any sort or rank of persons, whether high or low, rich or poor, bond or free, servant or master. But simply thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is in secret. Uh, here are three thous, or yous, which are to be understood indefinitely. Thou servant as well as thou master, thou bondman as well as thou freeman, thou poor as well as thou rich man, thou maid as well as mistress, child as well as father, wife as well as husband. Private prayer is an indispensable duty that lies upon all sorts and ranks of persons. A man may as well say that the pronoun thou or you that runs through the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, make any graven image, and so on, thou shalt not kill, uh, relates to the rich and not to the poor, uh, to masters and not to servants, and so on. Uh, number two, previous answers apply here. Uh, I answer that the first, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth answers that are given to the first objection are here very applicable. And oh, that all masters and servants were so wise, so serious, and so ingenuous as to lay all those answers warm on their own hearts. It might be a means to prevent much sin and to bespeak masters and mistresses to give their pious servants a little more time to lift up their hearts to Christ in a corner. Thirdly, I answer, if you are a servant that has liberty to choose a new master, you would be better removed to remove your station than live under such a master's roof who is such an enemy to God, to Christ, to religion, to himself, and to the eternal welfare of your poor soul, as that he will not give you half an hour's time in a day to spend in your room, your closet, uh, though the glory of God, the good of his own family, and the everlasting happiness of your own soul is concerned in it. It is better for you to shift your master than to neglect your duty. Are you called being a servant? Paul asked. Care not for it. But if you may be made free, use it, rather. We lost our liberty by sin, and we affect nothing more than liberty by nature. The rabbins say of liberty, If the heavens were parchment, the sea ink, and every pile of grass a pen, the praises of it could not be comprised nor expressed. Laban's house was full of idols. Great houses are often so. Jacob's tent was little, but the true worship of God was in it. It is infinitely better to live in Jacob's tent than in Laban's house. 
It is best being with such masters where we may have least of sin and most of God, where we may have the most helps, the best examples, and the choicest encouragements to be holy and happy. The religious servant should be as careful in the choice of his master as the religious master is careful in the choice of his servant. Gracious servants are great blessings to the families where they live. And that master may well be called the unhappy master who will rather part with a gracious servant than spare him a little time in a day to pour out his soul before the Lord in a corner. Number four, you have the spirit of prayer. Fourthly, I say, if you are a gracious servant, then you are spirited and principled by God to this very purpose that you may cry, Abba, Father, when you are alone when you are in a corner, and no eye sees you but his who sees you in secret. If you are a gracious servant, then you have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. Now, he that has this tree of life has also the fruit that grows on this tree. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. Now, grace is called not the works of the spirit, but the fruits of the Spirit, because all grace is derived from the Spirit as the fruit is derived from the root. And secondly, to note the pleasantness and delightfulness of grace, for, for what is more pleasant and delightful than sweet and wholesome fruits? And also to note the profit and advantage that doth redound to them that have the Spirit. For as many grow rich by the fruits of their gardens and orchards, so many grow rich in grace, in holiness, in comfort, in spiritual experiences by the fruits of the Spirit. Now why has God given you His Spirit and why has He laid into your soul a stock of supernatural graces but that you may be every way qualified, disposed, and fitted for private prayer and to maintain secret communion with God in a corner? Certainly God never gave any poor servant a talent of gifts or a talent of grace, but in order to his driving of a secret trade heavenward. Number five, Daniel sets an example as a servant. Fifthly, I answer, though King Darius, or Darius, had made a decree that none should ask any petition of any god or man for thirty days upon the penalty of being cast into the den of lions. Yet Daniel, who was both a subject and a servant to the king, and one upon whose hands the chiefest and greatest affairs of the kingdom did lie, did keep up his private devotions. In the first and second verses of that sixth chapter of Daniel, you will find that Daniel had abundance of great and weighty employments upon his hands. He was set over the whole affairs of the whole empire of Persia, and he, with two other presidents of whom himself was chief, were to receive the accounts of the whole kingdom from all those hundred and twenty princes which in the Persian monarchy were employed in all public businesses. And yet, notwithstanding such a multiplicity of business as lay upon his hands, and notwithstanding his servile condition, yet he was very careful to redeem time for private prayer. Yes, it is very observable that the heart of Daniel 
in the midst of all his mighty businesses, was so much set upon private prayer, upon his secret retirements for religious exercises, that he runs the hazard of losing all his honors, profits, pleasures, yes, and life itself, rather than he would be deprived of convenient time and opportunities to wait upon God in his room. Certainly Daniel will one day rise in judgment against all those subjects and servants who think to evade private prayer by their pleas of much business and of their being servants. Number six, gracious servants should outdo others. Sixthly, I answer, if you who are gracious servants, having received the grace of God, notwithstanding your master's businesses, cannot redeem a little time to wrestle with God in a corner, what distinctively Christian thing do you do? What do you more than others? Do you hear? Well, so do others. Do you read? So do others. Do you follow your masters to public prayer? So do others. Do you join your, with your masters in family prayer? So do others. Oh, but now gracious servants should go beyond all other servants in the world. They should do singular things for God. What do you more than others, Jesus asked? What more ordinary than to find servants following their masters to public prayers and to family prayers? Oh, but now to find poor servants to redeem a little time from their master's business, to pour out their souls before the Lord in a corner. This is not ordinary. Yea, this is extraordinary. And this doth wonderfully well become gracious servants. Oh, that all men's servants, who are servants to the Most High God, would seriously consider. Consider first how singularly they are privileged by God above all other servants in the world. They are called, adopted, reconciled, pardoned, justified before the throne of God, which other servants are not. And why then should not such servants be singular in their services who are so singular in their privileges? Also, gracious servants are made partakers of a more excellent nature than other servants are. Whereby are given unto us, says Peter, exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. The apostle in this expression does not aim at any essential change and conversion of our substance into the nature of God in Christ, but only at the elevation and dignifying of our nature by Christ. Though that real, that near, that dear, choice, mysterious, peculiar, singular union that Christ and Christians have does raise them up to a higher similitude and likeness of God, and Christ than ever they had attained in their primitive perfection, yet it does not introduce any real transmutation or change into another substance, either of our bodies or souls, into the divine nature. It is certain that our union and conjunction with Christ does neither mingle persons nor unite substances, but it does enjoin our affections and brings our wills into a league of amity with Christ. To be made partaker of the divine nature notes two things, as some people say. First, a fellowship with God in His holiness. And secondly, a fellowship with God in His blessedness, in a beatifical vision and brightness of glory. 
to be made partakers of the divine nature, say others, is to be made partakers of those holy graces, <clears throat> those divine qualities, which sometimes are called the image of God, or the likeness of God, or the life of God, whereby we resemble God, not only as a picture does a man in outward lineaments, but as a child does his father in countenance and conditions. Now, take the words which way you will. Uh, how highly does it concern those servants that are made partakers of the divine nature to do singular things for God, to do such things for God that other servants that are not partakers of the divine nature have no mind, no heart, no spirit to do, yea, that they refuse and scorn to do. Thirdly, gracious servants are worthily descended. They have the most illustrious extraction and honorable origin. Fourthly, gracious servants are worthily attended. They are nobly guarded. Fifthly, gracious servants are worthily dignified. They are dignified with the highest and most honorable titles. And sixthly, take many things in one. Servants filled with grace have more excellent graces, experience, comforts, communions, promises, and so on, than all other servants in the world have. And therefore God may well expect better and greater things from them than from all other servants in the world. God may very well expect that they should do singular things for his glory, who has done such singular things for their good. Certainly God expects that gracious servants should be blessing him when other servants are blaspheming him, that they should be magnifying him when others are debasing him, that they should be redeeming of precious time when others are trifling, fooling, playing, of sinning away of precious time. They should be weeping in a corner when other servants are sporting and making themselves merry among their jovial companions. They should be mourning in secret while other servants are sinning in secret. They should be at their private devotion when other servants are sleeping and snoring. Solomon, that was the wisest prince that ever sat upon a throne and who was guided by an infallible spirit, has delivered it for a standing maxim above 2,000 years ago that the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor. When Solomon dropped this aphorism from his royal pen, there was not a man in the world that was legally righteous, Adam and all his posterity being fallen from all their honor, glory, dignity, and excellency into a most woeful gulf of sin and misery. And therefore Solomon must be understood to refer to him that is evangelically righteous. He that is evangelically righteous, be he master or servant, rich or poor, is more excellent than his neighbor. And all that all masters would seriously consider of this, that they may carry it no more so proudly, loftily, scornfully, sourly, bitterly towards their pious servants as not to afford them a little time to pour out their souls before the Lord in a corner. I have read of Ingo. He was an ancient king of the Draves that was uh, maybe inhabitants of the territories of the Dravas. Um, the Veneds, uh, the, the Venedae, they're called in, in Tacitus. Uh, they, they made a, a stately feast, appointed all his 
pagan nobles to sit in the hall below. This is Ingo. And at the same time commanded certain poor Christians to be brought up into his presence chamber to sit with him at his table, that they might eat of his kingly cheer. When many wondered at this, he told them that he accounted Christians, though never so poor, a greater ornament at his table and more worthy of his company than the greatest nobles that were not converted to the Christian faith. For, says he, when these pagan nobles shall be thrust down to hell, these poor Christians shall be my consorts and fellow princes in heaven. Certainly, this noble prince will one day rise in judgment against all sour, churlish Labans who carry it so harshly and so severely towards their gracious servants as that they will not allow them a little time to wait upon God in a hole. Why should not gracious masters give their gracious servants a little time for closet prayer now, concerning that they are sharers with them in all the fundamental good that comes by Christ in this world, and considering that they shall be partakers with them in all the glory of another world? The poorest servant in a family has a soul more precious than heaven and earth, and the greatest work that lies upon his hand in this world is to look to the eternal safety and security of that. For if that be safe, all is safe. If that be well, all is well. But if that be lost, all is lost. Every gracious servant, though he be never so poor and mean, yet has he the image of God, the image of the King of Kings stamped upon him. And woe to him that shall wrong or despise or trample upon that image." Certainly God himself is wronged by the injury that is done to his image. The contempt and despot that is done to the image or coin of a king is done to the king himself, and accordingly he will revenge it. If it was a capital crime in Tiberius's day to carry the image of Augustus upon a ring or coin into any sordid place, as Suetonius says it was, what crime must it be in those masters who despise, revile, reproach, scorn, abuse, tread upon underfoot such servants as have the image of the great God stamped on their souls, and all because they look Godward, Christward, heavenward. Masters should never twit their servants in the teeth with their inferiority, their poverty, their misery, but remember that these things are more the Creator's pleasure than the servant's fault, and that that God that has made the master rich and the servant poor can as quickly make the master poor and the servant rich. God many times puts down the mighty from their seats and exalts them of low degree. Certainly no master nor mistress should dare to insult or triumph over such servants as have souls as noble as their own, but they should seriously and frequently consider of Solomon's aphorism, the righteous, though a servant, though the meanest among all the servants, is more excellent than his neighbor, and accordingly give them a little time and liberty to converse with God in secret, and oh, that all gracious servants would discover themselves to be more excellent than their neighbors by making more conscience of private prayer than their neighbors do, and by being more in their closets than their neighbors are, and by delighting themselves in their secret retirements more than their neighbors will, 
and by redeeming some time for God, for their souls, for eternity, more than their neighbors do. We'll pick it up there next time. Thank you for being here at the Hackberry House of Chosun again. Do look around the site. And this particular audio is being released on the 31st of March, 2023. Well, God bless you, and Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.